0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Ben Walter. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SDR, broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungarra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. That these are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First People. Now, Ben Walter is an award-winning writer of stories, essays, and poems. He's the fiction editor of Island Magazine, and today he is joining us on the podcast with a debut collection of short stories called "What Fear Was." What Fear Was takes the reader through a diverse set of landscapes and into strange yet familiar spaces. From our relationship to the natural world to nature's barely withheld disdain for our mistreatment and abuse, this collection is a surreal exploration. What Fear Was constantly challenges our sense of where we fit in the world, a world we too often think we own. Join me as we discover Ben Walters, What Fear Was. Ben, it's terrific to have you here. I'm excited to get into some of these stories.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's really nice to be talking to you, Andrew.
0: (laughs) And how to encapsulate a a collection that has like numerous stories, disparate, um, exciting, interesting. It takes, what fear was, takes the reader through this diverse set of landscapes into strange yet familiar spaces. And for me, at least, I found it constantly challenged my sense of where we fit in the world, a world that we too often, I think, think that we own. Um, I want to start, though, with just how to get our head around your writing. And in your website bio, you describe yourself as a writer of lyrical, un-Australian fiction. And I'm really curious about that that distinction and maybe what we're seeing in what fear was. So, what, what are you seeing in our current cultural milieu that you're writing against or perhaps writing in response to?
1: Look, it's it's an interesting question. The the notion of being un Australian fiction, look, this came up some years ago when I guest edited a, a fiction suite in Overland Online, which I called an un Australian fiction edition. It's probably five or six years ago now. And I guess what I was trying to argue for there was a more disparate set of stories than the kinds of things we tend to see most often in Australian fiction, which tends to be, and it's not fair to say everything's like this because there are different sorts of writers, Um, but it tends to be realist, it tends to be fairly linear, it tends to occupy a similar kind of tone. And so I've always been conscious of... uh, I don't want to say writing against it because that would assume that I've seen that and I want to do something different. But I've always been conscious that the writing I really, really enjoy from various cultures is quite different to that. And the writing that I'm doing is quite different to that. And so I guess it's a desire to carve out a space for that kind of writing in the Australian context where it's often seen as... Um, maybe not marketable, maybe not legitimate, maybe it's not valued in a certain some, same sort of way as, as some of these other forms.
0: It's an interesting sobriquet to take on because <coughs> we often like when when un-Australian gets thrown mm-hmm. out. It's something that is defining itself against something that maybe hasn't been defined. You know, we, we don't talk about Australian so much as un-Australian sometimes. And mm. it, it can often be pejorative. Like, in in sort of thinking about this, are you aware of the pejorative and wanting to, to change something about that, change this narrow definition that we often fall, find ourselves falling into?
1: No, I don't think I'm trying to sort of broaden the, the understanding of the word itself. I, I just felt that it was... It was a word with bite that I could use to uh, to describe um, my approach. And, and maybe, I'll look, at it, it's years ago now, but it's kind of fun. You know, it's fun yeah. to be able to take these kinds of words which do have all sorts of connotations and reinterpret them to, to uh, you know, recognise something in what you're doing that may be positive as opposed to a simplistic pejorative uh, throwaway line. Yeah. Well,
0: too, touche, I bit. I and, <laughs> and in this really strange way, like looking at that that um that bio, it gave me, if not a lens, but a, a different sort of angle to start thinking about some of the reading I'd already done in what fear was. But before we actually get to the stories in the collection, something that always fascinates me when I read a collection um, is. How does it come together? What is the editorial process? Obviously, a novel has a narrative arc, sometimes a three-act structure that it has to conform to, but I I don't know much about these stories until I encounter them. How do you curate a collection like What Fear Was?
1: Look, it's, it's simple and then it's complicated, I think. It's simple in the sense that you know, for a long time there, particularly for about a five year period, I wrote an awful lot of short stories, like dozens of the things. Um, and it's slowed down now. I've got three young kids. And so I just don't have the same time to be able to spend um, writing these kinds of things at the moment. That's starting to change a little bit as they get a bit older. But um, there's a lot of stories to choose from. So I, I think I went to Martin, my agent, and I said, look, here are about 40 stories. Um, obviously, we're not going to publish all of these. Which ones do you reckon we should? uh drop it down to and then through his suggestions and my thinking we ended up cutting that probably more than in half or thereabouts but then it's a it's a different sort of issue because then you're saying well how do we um how do we arrange them um we will hear these stories we like these the most out of all the other ones how do we arrange them and i think a lot of it is just uh, trying to think about yourself as a reader, you know, you might want to give a reader a break after a particularly dense story with something shorter and lighter. And then you, you come to the, your editor, Ed has a an, has thoughts too, and he su- he suggested, well, these two have a similar sort of tonal ending. Maybe you want to break those up. These two are both set in a in a movement or driving context, and a, and then perhaps the most conspicuous one is he suggested moving a different story to the front, which is the weird one with the talking fish, um, which I, is an interesting choice and it's, it's one of the reasons I really value being published by Puncher and Watman because it's, it's, I mean, a lot of the stories are strange and that's on the stranger edge. Um, but Ed really liked the story and he says, look, why don't we open with that? Um, it, it, maybe it does put some people off. Maybe people look at it and go, hey, what am I in for here? But at the same time, you know, I am who I am and it, it is an introduction to my work that if, if, if you are one of the readers who appreciate these sorts of things, you you suddenly know you're in that kind of space.
0: Thinking about, thinking particularly <laughs> about that story, um, which is Flathead Out One Day, as I read it, yeah, you you did have me, I wasn't thinking so much, what am I in for? but it was setting a tone that I think maybe informed at least my immediate reading after that. I didn't sit down and read this all in one hit. I've read mm. stories. That is what I, that is something I love about short story collections. You can dip in. Yeah. Um, you talked there a lot about uh, the idea of maybe separating stories that are tonally similar or that have similar settings. Is there anything about, say, setting us up with the initial story that... Is done to to maybe link ideas. Are there are there ways of arranging that that link ideas?
1: Well, there probably are, but that wasn't something that was in view for what I was doing, and partly because the stories are fairly disparate. Now there are commonalities there, but there are some stories which are are really sort of straight dance lyrical. There's even one a long one which is straight dance lyrical realism, um, which. Uh, Is not something that I normally do, and then that can be followed up by something that's completely absurd and light and all over the place. So it's not it's not that classic sort of collection that publishers love these Mm. days, where everything links together, all the themes hold together, that they can market in an easy way. It's really just, I think, a, a collection, a representation of my work, and if there are links there, it's simply because they're my work, if, they if you know what I mean, they're yep. all coming from the same person, yeah.
0: Is that two stories you were just talking about, referring to there, is that Conglomerate followed by Superman that we're, we're thinking? Um, about?
1: Conglomerate is the long realist one yeah. that I was talking to, and I think that's probably right, I can't remember what came straight afterwards, but that. That would be it. Would be something like that, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that we've we've started. Let's go to the stories now. What Fear Was takes the reader to this strange mix of terrains, real and imagined. We meet characters that defy expectation, sometimes feeling like archetypes and also caricatures. A lot of these stories left me with big question marks. Things like, you know, what is my relationship to the food I eat? That's Flathead out one day. <laughs> <laughs> Or how how do I square things like personal ambition with my responsibility to the world? Um, These are my responses. But where do the stories begin with you? Is it an idea or is it a character?
1: Uh, It's usually what I call a sniff, which is where you don't have a fully formed idea, but you see potential in something. And that potential might just be something interesting or it might make me giggle or it, it's often where you're combining some disparate things together that you wouldn't otherwise expect to be. So you might say, here's something and I can see somewhere in the terrain there's an op- opportunity here for something to develop. And I like those kinds of things more because often those sorts of things that aren't fully formed are more fun to write, you don't know what it is, and it's more likely to lead into something that's not too neat, which can be a problem with an idea that suddenly crystallises in your head. So it's just something like a sniff of an idea where you see that there's some sort of potential in something that you then need to outwork into into reality and the actual doing of it.
0: You use the word terrain there, and I think I've used it as well already. And it feels like it occupies a really strange space in these stories because you take us to different terrains, physical spaces, but then you also try to take us into different parts of, I guess, at least the human experience, if not our own individual experience. What are the terrains that you're exploring?
1: Look, In in terms of landscape, if we want to take it strictly, literally, um, a lot of my work, not all of it, but a lot of it, is based very strongly in the Tasmanian landscape. Um, I have a, a lot of experience in the natural world here. In some ways you can't avoid that because the natural world and, and the human coexist in Tasmania in a way that they just don't in most other parts of Australia um, unless you're actually living in the deep rural. I mean, you've got, you've got a Hobart, above Hobart, well, there's a whacking great river that goes through it too, for a start, the dwarfs most other rivers around the place. And there's a mountain above it, Mount Wellington, or Kunani. And if you go up to the top of that mountain, you can look south and west and you see nothing but more mountains. These things overhang. And so it's a natural terrain for a a Tasmanian writer to write about. The difference with my work for the most part is that it's not straightforward realist. So a lot of Tasmanian writing that has a, a strong devotion to place tends to be very earnest, tends to be very focused in the real and trying to capture that place, whereas I'm interested in doing that, but then I'll skew it and I'm really um, keen on incorporating, I guess, influences from elsewhere or other ideas or other conceits to make it both familiar and strange at the same time.
0: Let's think then about how you are capturing that and... I mean, story, it's, it feels like a really obvious thing to say that in a story we are capturing things in words. But in these stories, I found a struggle or perhaps a questioning of the ways language can be inadequate to communicate some things. Um, in Be My Dora, there's a couple, they sit on the edge of a floodplain as rain sets in, and they're surrounded by boats that bear the name Dora. Um, we come to find out why all these boats have the name Dora on them, but it's also a name that's linked to the man and is thus anathema to the woman. And it's this really strange conundrum that we find ourselves in when words are actually getting in the way of that communication. Was that was that a shortcoming you wanted to explore broadly?
1: Look, not, not so much. I mean, I think in... In that story, it was just a just an idea, and I think I probably just thought, "Hey, here's a funny idea. Here's something that I can play with." Uh, he, the beauty, I think, for words, I don't see them necessarily as a, a conundrum per se. I see them as full of potential, mm. and and that's the that's one one of the reasons I concentrate so much on my prose. For example, is I always feel like um, you know, if you work hard enough, you can find the, the exactly right word, whether that be you know in the Flaubert, Flaubert sort of sense, but the exactly right word for for whatever the situation requires it and sometimes it's frustrating because you know exactly what you want but that right word isn't there so you have to change something that you're doing so that the right word will be there um so but i but i think i mostly see words as full of potential as so layered with you know various shades of meaning and the way that they interconnect with other words that it's not so much a frustrating experience that i want to capture in the most part i want to be filled with glee in some ways at how much fun you can have with words and how um, much meaning you can generate in the way that they relate to each other.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I, and it is definitely this incredible experience, the idea of the way words interplay. I just, I think I also just loved and I was interested in mm. the way when you're communicating, particularly the natural world and interacting with the natural world, there's so much connected to subjective experience and your mm. subjective experience. You've talked about um, Hobart and the way the natural world figuratively and literally overhangs. Um Mm. your your connection to the natural world is very different to someone living in a a metropolitan area. And sometimes the way we we really have to take a leap to be in someone else's shoes, in someone else's headspace to understand what they are trying to communicate with us.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And and to what extent the I mean, at the end of the day Reading and writing always meets halfway, right? Because I, I can't necessarily take you exactly to what it's like to wander across a button grass plain, really in the middle of uh, um, a valley that's full of mud and mosquitoes, and the heat's baking down, and these kinds of things. You can get some sense of it, but the reader is always going to take what they can in terms of their experience to to interpret it. So you're always meeting halfway, but I think that's just the nature of reading, more generally. It's just one of those one of those things. Mm.
0: I want to keep going with this idea of connection. In conglomerate, a hiking group bond over their shared excursions through the Tasmanian wilderness. They turn their pastime into a passion, raising funds to protect flora and fauna. But the story is is haunted by a question that's asked very early on in a hike by Rosa. Do you ever think about how walking would change for you if one of us died out here? And it's a question that seems to highlight that despite their passion, despite the time they spend walking, the space is still, as Rosa calls it, out here, and their visitors are not truly a part of it. Do you think that we have become just inexorably separated from our natural world?
1: It's a really difficult question, and it plays into all sorts of discussion about what we mean by the natural world. Mm. Um, I do feel, though, that there's for, for most of us in australia we don't have a particularly strong viewed experience in term, in relationship with the natural world um and that that's probably declining as well over time that level of experience but as most people are growing up in urban situations it's not that there's no nature in the urban situation but you're distracted from it by virtue of all of everything else that's going on and and the, the trend towards being inside, which I don't just mean in the COVID sense, just in terms of the hobbies that we do, where our focus lies. So there's certainly um, there's a greater disconnect between us and, and the natural world, even than sort of European colonising ancestors would have had. Yeah. Um, so let alone First Nations. In saying that, is it, is it something that can't be overcome to some extent? I mean, I still think that you can... Experience the natural world legitimately. I think you can go out and enjoy it, and learn about it, and appreciate it. Um, it's the reality is that for most of us, we don't live in that that world directly. Per se, we're not living as as people once did, and so it's never going to be that anymore. The disconnect, the level, the the disconnect is always going to be one of degrever, and I think that that's that's something that we can work to overcome if we see value in it.
0: Yeah, and and one way that we do work to overcome that is we move to the natural world for Mm. leisure. There's a Mm. lot of walking in this book, which I actually, I really love. i like walking Mm. is one of my favorite things to do. Um, Mm. What a strange confession to make on air. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But you also, you seem to be complicating our idea of travel in the stories as well. And it always, it always did feel quite complicated to me. People moving to travel and the things that happen while they're traveling. Uh, travel can almost seem like this liminal space um, outside of our our scare quotes real world. Do you feel like that need to move, that to explore, to discover, is justified in the world, in, and especially in a world that doesn't provide that experience equally?
1: Look, I don't have a strong opinion. Either way about that, in terms of, I guess, the lives we live, um, I feel that it seems a a very human thing for some people to do, to to be wanting to go out and engage with otherness in that kind of way, and I can understand it, but I don't necessarily feel that I have a particularly strong uh, view in relation to the ethics of that either way or the significance of that. I think it's going to be different for different people. It's difficult, obviously, as you say. I mean, most people don't have the opportunity to do it. But if we start down that line, we have to recognize privilege operates at all levels in in terms of those points of comparison, not just travel. So it's hard to import, I guess, a specific ethic in relation to travel when it's such a broad and overwhelming category. Um, So I I don't know. I mean, I don't really. I mean, I, I traveled once for travel's sake about. 10 years ago and had a good look around at things and I was glad that I did that, but I don't have a lot of interest in going all over the place for the sake of, but that's just personal. I I struggle to have an opinion beyond that for anybody else.
0: Yeah. I was thinking, I think when I was composing that question, I was thinking particularly about stories like conglomerate, which is a relatively, I guess contained local travel or wrapped in ice speaking where Mm. things that happen, show us, I guess that um we're not invincible when we travel like we, we we kind of craft a narrative around travel that it is this space where we bring our joy the joy comes mm. into our life and I guess at least you show us that it's not outside of real life and it is a it is a space where I don't want to give anything like I don't want to give anything away <laughs> here you know what Ben knows what I'm, Ben knows what I'm talking about and I'm gonna leave that I'm just gonna leave that open yeah. so that I'm not giving away those stories. <laughs>
1: Partly too, though, it's just the nature of short stories. Like if, if, if everybody went on a holiday and they had a lovely time, it'd be a totally boring short story as well. So, 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 so something needs to happen. To We've all heard those people. stories at dinner
0: parties. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right.
0: Oh, dear. Um, and I just accidentally flicked away from my notes and I couldn't see them. I want to move from the natural world and and continue on with the idea of the human. Um, You also show us in these stories how often our bodies are barely suited for the world outside so-called civilization. There are descriptions of the way you're actually, Ben's thinking right now, he's like, you really like to conglomerate. (laughs) (laughs) I I realise a lot of of my ideas, it is good in a short story collection to focus on one or two, uh, or we'd be creating a 10-hour podcast, Mm. as we joked off air. So uh, the way our bodies uh, can sometimes seem barely suited for the world outside so-called civilization, and yet we're drawn again and again to these places. You also show us some macabre feats of, human daring um and here we come to conglomerate you ask how to square these sensations this feeling that maybe we're not quite suited for this world but we actually want to be in it um do you think are we throwing ourselves in the way of harm to answer these questions
1: no, but I think it's just a question of reality. Like one of the things that you notice really quickly, and I can really only speak accurately of the Tasmanian landscape because that's the one I know intimately. I don't know much about a desert. I don't know much about the far north Queensland. These aren't landscapes that I can, mm. no, I've been to some of them, but I don't know them. Yep. Uh, the Tasmanian stuff I know reasonably well. And one of the things that you notice about it is that there are hazards. There are various things that, a characteristic of the Tasmanian landscape, particularly mostly they're related to weather, um, but there are other issues. There is fire, there is scrub, and the scrub is like nothing you can ever imagine if you've never been in really thick scrub, where experienced strong walking parties make a progress of about a kilometre a day in 12-hour days. Like That's the reality of some of the scrub. Um, so it's not necessarily and this perhaps comes back to a question that you raised earlier it's not necessarily what people expect you know it's the people who turn up at the start of the overland track in jeans carrying their kit in plastic bags in silly shoes or whatever it might be and the overland track is a doddle but that is so counter to what is required even then to uh, attempt a trip like that um that it is a disjunction between perhaps the carefully managed Tourist uh, events or treks that people might have been on, and an actual real unsupported bushwalk. So I think that it's about knowledge. It's about becoming aware of, of a space, which you can only do by being in that space over time and being with other people who've been in that space, and recognizing that this is that if you if you if you're silly, if you don't have the right kit, if you make the wrong decisions. You can die out here. It can happen, or you might just get really, really unlucky. You might slip over, and you can die out here. Um, But at the same time, if you grow to become aware of this place, then you can minimise that risk significantly. Mm. And and that's that's I think the distinction is that recognizing that you can't just throw yourself like a sort of a a twenty-one year old twenty-one year old invincible dude into everything, and and everything is going to be okay. Like. To, to, to get on in certain contexts in the natural world you have to, um, you have to listen, you have to understand and you have to get a sense of how things actually work. Uh, and some of that you can pick up through people explaining it to you. but a lot of it is just ah oh, I need to or should I should have packed that or ah oh, I'm carrying too much of this and recognizing these sorts of things while you're actually out there.
0: I asked uh, I began by asking you about how you curate your collection. But perhaps a better way for me to have been thinking about it might have been how you show us the through the collection the ways we try to create, sorry, curate our world. Exactly as you described there, we would like... The rugged adventure, but we'd like to be able to do it in our comfortable lounge clothes, um, and 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 preferably between the nine to five, so that we still make our dinner reservation. And yeah, that, yeah. And that can like that is a conundrum that can can often foil us and and lead us down or uh, difficult paths.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just where I mean, and I think it's the carefully managed thing. Like most of our experiences are carefully managed on our behalf, and it's when they're not that things can go pear-shaped because we suddenly realise that we're not necessarily... Um, equipped to do the sorts of things that we thought would be absolutely fine because of what we've become used to in our society. And that can be an example of that, I think, yeah.
0: yeah. All right. So now I want to ask about these ideas of expectations, what we are equipped and not equipped for, because I found a lot of questing and also uncertainty in your characters. They want to achieve something. They want to believe they can be someone. And I'm, I'm picking on The Economist and Superman here. But they also have a terror that maybe it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And the the ending to Superman, like this is, if anyone wanted to poison taste this collection, Superman is this incredibly compact, a two-page, two-page story. But it, it the ending just felt so darkly ludicrous, but poked at this bruise of maybe we're not anyone and, in fact, maybe we're the problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I mean... Uh- I think that there's a lot of good fodder in puncturing expectations because we all want things, don't we? We, we want things as people and it's the wanting of things that uh, drives a lot of short stories. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut, I think, in, in one of his rules for short stories or rules for stories is, says that at, at the start you've got to make sure that your character wants something, even if it's just a glass of water um, because it's often that desire that drives um, the short story. And I won't say drives the plot of a short story because I'm not sure that the best short stories necessarily have plots per se, but, but they do have a drive. And often that's about what you know the, the protagonist or the main character wants something. Um, but they're going to be inevitably frustrated and whether, whether that's going to be by circumstances or whether that's because of something that's actually contradictory deep inside them, um, that either of these things can be taking place in the nature of a story and both of these things are taking place in our lives as well. And mm. um, we're frustrated both by uh, by ourselves often, but also by circumstance and these things uh, I think uh, are one of the, the the clearest parallels with how fiction and, and reality work together. <laughs>
0: ben i have pulled out stories that resonated with me and i've given you my reading of those stories now it's not fair of me to ask you to pick a favorite child so to speak but is there a story that you would say here is how i want people to discover here is my entry point into what fear was
1: not necessarily i think at 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 the first instance, because I recognise that people have enormously different tastes. And so even if I pick something out, uh, it's not necessarily the story for that person. And if I was just talking about myself, I think my favourite story that I look back on is a story called It's All Happening Here, um, which I, I have a real fondness for because of the way I think it works in a way that it shouldn't. And, and I think it's distinct and different from anything else that I've ever read. And I don't say that to talk it up. I say that in some ways to challenge myself because I I look at that and it's a it's all happening here is an argument for me not to be lazy because as a, as a short story writer, it's really, really easy just to start doing the same sorts of things over and over again instead of trying to completely make something new each time or something different each time in a way that hasn't been done before. And so that story sort of looks at me and says, look, you tried something here. Amazingly, it worked in a neat, clear way, which it really shouldn't have. You need to keep on making new things and different things rather than getting lazy. So as a writer, that's the story I look to. Whether that's the right entry point for a reader will depend on the reader.
0: We're getting dangerously close, Ben, to me just starting to do a line-by-line reading of my favourite parts of What Fear Was. (laughs) So this might be an appropriate time to say thank you, to let everyone know that I am speaking with Ben Walter and his collection, What Fear Was, is expansive in the ideas that I discovered and also the places that it takes you. It's so terrific to have a chance to chat, Ben. And um, look, I... You know, like like I said, I think people need to go and discover that. Run into your bookstore, have a quick flick at Superman, and then buy the collection for everything else that it contains.
1: <laughs> oh, thanks. That's really kind, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's it for this great conversation with Ben Walter. Ben's new book is What Fear Was. It is out now from Puncher and Watman. Great Conversations is recorded on the lines of the Darug and Gunnagurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. It means a new great conversation. And just a quick note, because I usually say a new great conversation every week, but it has been quite a time over the last month. And if you are a regular listener, you may have noticed our irregular publishing schedule. I've tried to make sure that something goes up every week so that you have some book love to keep you going. But uh, it, look, there there has been fits and bursts. At the moment, I am working on catching up on all the incredible interviews that have featured on 2SER every Saturday morning. And hopefully, hopefully you will see me get back. I'm taking the long weekend to catch up and you'll see me get back on our regular publishing schedule because I can assure you there are some incredible writers coming up. So, stay tuned, hit subscribe. It means that it's going to pop up in your podcast feed whenever it is available. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.